0: Welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man?
1: You know, we got to give the people, give the people what they want.
0: John and his jingles—that's that's that's (laughs) his future career here. There you go. We're we're auditioning, (laughs) but if you don't want John to have to go into a future career of jingles, you know what you can do to to help out.
1: Please let them know how they can save me.
0: <laughs> Check out the Running Scholar Program. And today we're going to go over, you know, a, a review of what's going on in the Running Scholar Program Clubhouse. Here's an update
1: for the yep. week. Let's bring it.
0: I was, I was really excited this week because, you know, I threw a couple science articles in there because that's my job here. One of which literally tracked and a research review tracked the training of world-class athletes, including people like Kipchoge, Bekeli, Meb. Like they got the training logs and they said, hey, we're going to do a, a study on this and break this down and break this apart in terms of their training distribution, their their uh, modulation of training, what they're doing, all that stuff. And it was a fascinating read. So it wasn't just those guys. It was about 20 world-class performers from the 5K all the way up to the marathon. Fascinating. Dump that in there. The other one that I dumped in there that we've got discussion going on in it is, is actually how your muscle recovers. So there is another fascinating study that came out that actually looked at, they had like microscopic video of it essentially, of after the muscle is damaged, how the the myonuclei these little things just kind of scoot over and fill the hole with proteins and and create mrna to get some protein and and all this stuff and they they mapped out actually the time course of what how this occurs so if you start to think about this it's like ah, now we understand the rest and recovery part we're starting to get more data and more understanding on how long it takes to Fill those holes, create stronger muscles so that you know we're not continuing tearing tearing things.
1: And why nutrition so, is so important and nutrition nutrient timing matters a lot too.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. All right. Besides my science nerd out, man, we had some great stuff. We had conversation on the weekly long run and when to cut it. We had conversation on the psychology. And understanding mindsets and how they play a role, not only in performance, but also in um, in practice and all that good stuff. We had rehab exercises. John, I know you went through a great and we had some awesome videos of some med ball exercises in here and how to progress them, mm-hmm. which I, I'm t- I took notes over and was like, okay. I'm going to add some of this into some athlete training.
1: Yeah, yeah We even had, yeah, uh, return to play or return to run um, advice for a coach who it had a young lady coming back from a stress fracture and how to load and um, her training or not load her training with spikes, soft shoes, volume, you know, faster type work, more explosive type work from just other scholars putting out for it either different um, experiences they had and or different literature and research that they found useful.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. So we're just continuing the conversation. I'm going to make it a priority to dump all the interesting science stuff I I find in there and then hopefully create some discussion around it. So if you want to be a part of it, head on over to the Running Scholar Program. Check it out.
1: Yeah, we literally have 10 channels going on concurrently. So we have like the high school coaching channel where I have like a sub thread of inside a high school track and field season live where I'm detailing that training that the high school runners I'm coaching are doing every day and the ups and downs. Uh, We're going through like a mini course live right now, Wickets for Runners, where I went deep into the um, uh, biomechanics and the you know fascia, muscle, rebounding effect, all these types of very interesting things, also with concrete points that we're looking for in kind of the recovery phase of running, as well as the more active phase of the ground preparation or pre-strike phase. We got the kind of science running area that Steve plops in the interesting stuff. People ask us in a channel uh, about you know questions they might have on the podcast or podcast they want us to do, workout discussions, in a channel that's really robust, of course, the enlightenment project, where we're trying to identify the great books of distance running, and coaching education to then be able to organize that in some coherent manner. That is a, you know, um, all hands on deck project where people just plop in a book or a resource or a podcast and say, hey, these are valuable um, information tools to help upgrade our thinking. And of course, the most famous and most exciting channel of all is the training talk where people just nerd out about different training things so literally there is someone posting and there's multiple discussions going on every day for only one dollar a day you get to be a part of it and we want you to join that's why we keep it a dollar a day i cannot think of we can't go any cheaper than that with inflation i'm sorry it's basically like almost a ruble at this point so (laughs) you know sign up join and please contribute and or just be some eyes on the walls and learn. I mean, it's it's a great way. And remember, education doesn't stop at the end of a course or when you get your certificate. It's a continuous thing. And this is a great avenue to uh,
0: do that. Absolutely. Okay. So with that, let's jump into today's topic. Everyone is an outlier.
1: There it is. I mean, we come on.
0: <laughs> so I uh, I I I love this. And when you texted me, you know, hey, let's talk about this. I was like, great, let's get on it. Let's do this because I think this is so important. Because what happens in coaching is we tend to, we tend to coach to the average, and we tend to assume that you know most people most of the time are going to respond in this way. And if you fall outside of that, often what happens is you get labeled as like, oh man, you're injury prone or you're a head case or like, I don't know, what are you doing? Are you not recovering well? And blah, 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 et cetera. We look for excuses why the training isn't working for you. And the reality is like, we're human beings, with complex systems that are much more complex than our, our simplistic models of them tell us they are right. And everyone responds in a different way and everyone in their own unique way is an outlier in something. And it's our job as coaches, like our job is to figure out and like peel back the layers and figure out, okay, psychologically physiologically you know mentally what what is it like where do you fall down the north the typical path but where do you deviate because everyone deviates and you've got to adjust your coaching to that
1: yeah this actually came was inspired by a response in a tweet i sent out that was kind of showing what we're doing in the um, inside of coaching thread on twitter and someone referenced i think I think Natalie Cook's training. And they're like, oh, no, that's an outlier. You can't – we can't coach to that. And it's like, whoa, 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 timeout, Jeans. Yes, you can because every outlier, whether they are highly successful or highly unsuccessful and injured all the time, does teach us something, right? And it's this concept of the average in – I think we do have to, as coaches, get away from, even scientists, Right. Because when you look at these scientific studies, the results are often a conglomerate of the average response rate of all the participants. But no one's response rate is exactly the same. Some people cluster around, you know, a certain area more than ours. But invariably, there's also people at the extremes either which way. And our job as coaches to have enough different ways to, you know, essentially, quote unquote, crack the nut. Of developing intelligent training protocols that advance athletes at our disposal so we can say, this person at this point doesn't respond well in this direction or in the desired direction to this type of stimuli, versus this person is off the charts responding. And I think that's where we kind of do ourselves a disservice when we think of outliers as only people on the extremes of response rates to a standard protocol. And that's as Steve and I, you know, are going to talk about. It's like your outliers are your best teachers because they give you and give us as coaches an appreciation for different paths that are available to take to get to the end result, which is competing at the best of your ability on the day, at the end of the season, or at the the highlight or import race of import.
0: Yeah, you know, I think often what we do is <laughs> we use the term outlier as a way to not deal with the thing, you know. And this goes on both extremes. We see someone and we're like, ah, oh, you know, the Natalie Cook example. Ah, oh, they only run twenty miles a week. Up, oh, they're outlier. Or we see someone, I don't know, this happened for years, like York High School running a tons, and it's like, ah, oh, like they're different. They're an outlier. Out Outlier. And I think what we have to do is we have to like take and learn. you know every situation gives us some feedback and some understanding for learning and development. And the way I looked at it as a coach is the more like understanding nuance like tools in my toolbox I had from seeing and learning from people who did different things, then the easier it, it was going to be to match up you know, my tools with whatever I had in front of me because every coach knows you're going to get a kid who doesn't respond or a kid who can't do X or a kid who can't do Y or at the high school level, a kid who comes in, um, you know, mid season from basketball and, and, and runs track and is really good and you need them, but you have like a couple weeks to get them ready. And the more tools you have in your toolbox to go from, like, the better off you are. And I'm actually going to use an example from way back in the day, early on in my coaching when I was coaching high school kids. So, um, his senior year, Ryan Doner, who was a, a stud, you know, at uh, going his senior, year going in a track season at at NXN, he was like ninth or tenth, you know, overall. Uh, had a great cross country season. Well, he got mono. And at that time, I remember being like, well, mono essentially means you're like done for a couple months. So like your senior track season is is done. And then like he talked to his doctor and all that stuff. And you know, they were like, well, you can do it as long as like you listen to your body and you don't push over the edge. So I remember sitting there like, okay, well, what makes him tired well if he ran for too long and made him tired we couldn't do that you know couldn't do too much volume well if we went like you know traditional maybe 800 repeats or mile repeats couldn't do that too much sustained like intensity if we went like all out 200s or 400s couldn't do that too much and like intensity in a small spot So I remember pondering this and just being like, you know what? What am I going to try? What are we going to try that's safe and blah, blah, blah. So for literally, you know, the next two months, we did Igloy style training, you know, hundreds short rests, Mm -hmm. broken into tons of sets. Why tons of sets? Because like it allowed him to recover, you know,
1: but Steve, you're you're stunning his aerobic development. He's never going to. Oh, wait. (laughs)
0: yeah so that's what we did like almost the entire se- is season like towards the end he finally got to a place where he was doing some like normal quote-unquote workouts but not much but he was he was the state champion in the in the two mile that year ran under nine and all that stuff and beat some really good kids uh like uh i think parker stinson was around oh, and all gosh. those stuff and so. he didn't do a long run oh my gosh so, so, and then, you know, we had a great career at, at Texas and then post-collegiately and all that stuff as well. But the the point is, if I didn't know who Igloy was in this other method of, you know, developing aerobically, then I would have been screwed. <laughs> right. And I, I, I would have either driven him into a hole from mono from doing the traditional things, or he would have just taken months off.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that shows like your non-responders are your best asset to get better as a coach, right? Cause if the current training model or paradigm that you operate under, you know, it's working for some, but not all, then that's, it's not the athlete's fault, right? It never is the athlete's fault. It can't be because, you as a coach, we're trying to elicit a response or reaction from the type of training in a certain direction. And if it's not happening all too often, it's too easy. It's to blame the athlete. Oh, their nutrition's poor. Oh, their recovery, support. oh, they're just not bought in. But you do get time in practice to create a stimulation of some type of load by asking them to do a certain type of work and whether how the degree of response will vary. But whether they respond or not also kind of depends on a lot of things like their, you know, body composition, their hormonal composition, the neurologic, um, you know, efficacy that they have up to that point where they playing multiple sports is their first time out. There's a lot of things to consider there. And we always have to remember, like, I think at the end of the day in coaching, the goal is to deliver the best experience for the athlete given the circumstances far too often we make it about time, 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 time. This very, you know, um, static status symbol that if you run this time once, that means you're this good forever. But we have to be careful of that because nowadays we have people doctoring and manufacturing their racing schedule so that they're only delivered on race day, especially at the professional level. When they know they're in peak form, then they deliver this Bravo time um, that's you know a record or really amazing, but yet they don't deliver on the day in the championship. Good example is the men's NCA indoor meets or indoor championships. The NCA leader in the time for the mile, three k and five k did not win the NCA title. So the fastest person indoors, they went to whatever meet they ran whatever they did not win. (laughs) So, and even in like, say the 3K and 5K cases, like the same guy, like, you know, Abdi won, he was not in like the top two or top, like he was kind of a little further back, right? So the question is, what are you playing the game for? Right? And far often than not, I think we got to remind ourselves that, as an athlete and coach, you have to divine what is the best experience possible. Like, I'll give an example from, an, you know, an athlete I'm working with right now at the high school level. This young woman, she had thoracic back surgery in the fall, was immobile and inactive for about eight months, like besides just walking around, right? Because she had some, you know, a spinal dysfunction that, like, hey, look, we need to nip this in the butt now. And she was a 800 meter runner, and now she's coming back for her senior year. And it's really tough on her because she's a lot slower, a lot slower than she was, you know, pre-surgery. But she's not in pain, which is amazing and you know important for the functioning of the rest of her life. And it's her senior year; she's not going to go on and compete in track in college. But she's—it's a part of her current self-identity. And so, you know, she just broke down in tears after an early meet because, like, she's—I'm just so much slower than I was. And I go. You know, sweetie, are you in pain? No, okay. I'm I like you're out here like you're working hard. Like you got to remember like the medicine of training takes a couple weeks to advance and you've been off for 8 months. And so I remind her look, the goal of this year is just to have a lot of fun, make a lot of memories and set your new post-surgery PRs. We cannot compare the pre-surgery PRs to the post-surgery PRs. It's a different body. You're you're at a different stage. I know like the nice thing would be to say, hey, you can, you should be faster. But all we're trying to do is ensure like this year you have a lot of fun. You make some really good memories with your peers. You give it everything you got and slowly and surely chip away and see if we can get a little better throughout the season. And that's the goal. And, you know, when we set that as the direction and understanding, you can see this relief just come over her. she like, okay. And so now we're having that conversation every You know, reminding her every race, reminding her before every, um, you know, workout is just like, look, all we're trying to do is get a little bit better than last week. And, you know, she's just chipping away at it. And it's great. Yes, she's still very far off from her, you know, pre-surgery ability, rightfully so. But, you know, the muscles had to atrophy. There's a a lot that went on. And I think if I had a one-style fits all approach and saying, all right, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, um, or else, or the concept of your times that you run is your status on the team and correlates to the attention you get or import of your presence um, on a day-to-day basis, the athlete would be a lot poorer for the experience. And that's really what we've got to remember. So she's an outlier, right? I mean, I've never had anyone who's at age 18 had thoracic back surgery. Like, I mean, that's an outlier. And so it's treating her in that way. And I'm learning a lot from that because it's, you know um, making me be a lot more empathetic and a lot more compassionate and and also thinking about how do we create a win winning situation for her for this season even though we might not get that winning situation on the track
0: yeah I love that I mean it's 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 seeing what you got in front of you and figuring out how to do it and I love that fresh it's almost like you're giving her a fresh start Right. And giving permission to not compare versus um versus you know the prior version of herself that might be a, a little unattainable at the moment. You know? And and I've I've had athletes do that with various other seasons of their life. You know, we do it all the time with once we hit a certain age, we start setting masters PRs. I've had athletes who have said, you know, I'm trying to get like my post-pregnancy PR or like <laughs> my post-college PR or whatever have you, where you're shifting the, the judgment point so that you can have, bring back some of that enjoyment instead of the like, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm not where I'm supposed to be at. And I think that that framing is incredible. And I think if we look at you know tying this to outliers etc is how you frame things matters matters so much right if we again going back to the label if we label someone as like ah you're a non-responder or you're like a head case or like i don't know what's wrong with you or why you're not getting better you should be getting better what it does is essentially gives us permission not to think or deal with it right
1: yeah it gives you and, just permission to ignore it. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And what our job as coaches isn't to ignore things is to figure things out.
1: Be really sensitive. And often, yes. Yeah.
0: And, and, and often what 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 happens is like we we like when things aren't aren't going well or whatever have you we we blame others or we resist we almost take offense right we we sit there and we're like what do you mean my not my training's not working my training is the best in the world like it must be you we almost again take it personally and i think this is the key right is you 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 can't fall in love with your training system so much that it blinds you from experimenting in other areas so yeah you know one thing and and then i'll turn it back over to you like John and I, like, we might have different views on like what our preferred method of aerobic development is, or our preferred like mileage, or our preferred workout. And that's totally fine. But what we both have to be able to do is go in the extreme other direction if we need to, if a kid demands it. If a kid needs to run nine-minute pace all day all the time. Then we better be able to like give him that. If a kid needs to do a hundred meter repeats instead of doing a long run, then we better be able to do that and not just be held back by our like preconceived notions or preferences.
1: I mean, the best coaching philosophy is this: get the athlete better. <laughs> do what needs to be done to get the athlete better. You know, and people for I might forget this, but like Steve and I both coach the you know, USATF half marathon women's champion in back-to-back years, (laughs) me with Tara Welling and then the next year him with Natasha Rogers. We have different orientations that we come from to accomplish that. And Tara and Natasha came from it in different directions, but you know what they both shared? They both had really good 3K form indoors, you know, either near PRs or at PR level, right? And then they both had a little down, you know, um, period of lack of confidence, lack of performance, um, you know, a little rocky road. And then both kind of out of the blue came and like just was dealing and won the half marathon. So like what I'm trying to articulate is from this example is Steve and I have different approaches in the amount of import we might place on speed development versus aerobic development. But both of us with different athletes accomplish the same outcome that an athlete winning a half marathon title on the day. And that's where we as coaches have to understand, like, do you need to do where the athlete gets better? Like I'm coaching a master's male marathoner, right. Who f- has been PRing, having a lot of fun and, you know, just doing really well. But when he ran his, like say marathon, he articulated that, all right, I ran this marathon at CIM. And I just felt like I just didn't have the legs in me, you know, in the last, four miles, right? And we hadn't done a whole lot of longer runs or longer volumes. And it was, we kind of like got to the, you know, through review and debrief, we got to it. And it's like, it's just a time on the feet issue, right? I was really sensitive. I didn't want him to spend too much time on the feet, because he's older. And doing longer, long runs when you're older, even in super shoes, creates a lot of mechanical breakdown. But, you know, because we discussed, like now, part of his training is building up for a late spring marathon is, Every three weeks he's going to do a just longer easier run two and a half hours or so. The pace doesn't matter but just to get the mechanical um, orientation and familiarity of time on the feet and they're really hard on him and so that requires several days and even like the week after to be really low key, low volume, low intensity because as an aging master's athlete you have to respect the breakdown that those type of severe Efforts have, but he still needs the exposure to feel like he can handle the, just the time on the feet aspect of running a marathon. So it's not like I was like, no, you can't run long, like that's stupid. It's always we're looking at what are the variables that are missing and what we need to do to get the athlete better. And the value of outliers is when we look at outliers, they show us, a, especially successful outliers. They show us a different path to the top. And that's the that's the most important thing is there's a million roads to Rome, right? But if you just think this is the only avenue and, you know, like I guess talking with Steve, you know, off, offline, we were talking about like how some people have this conception. The only way to get aerobic development in a distance runner is to do long, slower, easy running. That can be kind of discriminatory towards athletes and programs where it's unsafe to go and run out from the track whether it's the environment whether it's the socio-economic um you know situation there like telling an athlete hey i want you to go run for five miles you know down in a very unsafe neighborhood with a lot of homeless camps or you know uh, variants of um high velocity cars coming through speeding down you know these streets not a wise proposition or if you're just like literally in the middle of nowhere like at a smaller rural high school and all you have are highways and byways where you got semis plowing down back and forth and there's no real roads to run on in that type of situation because there's just a lack of development of that infrastructure well if all you can do is long slow runs like that's not going to be fun, you know, for an athlete. Okay, I want you to run for an hour around lane eight in the track, easy and jog around. You got to think of a different way to um, crack the nut, so to speak, right? So by having a myriad of different understandings that pathways to develop an athlete and seeing what outliers do, whether they're high mileage outliers, low mileage outliers, in between mileage outliers, cross training outliers, uh, weight training or strength training outliers, it gives us a glimpse at what's possible.
0: Yes. And and I think the the other part of this is if you look at our training knowledge and how we how we accumulate it or how we make sense of it is we often we often categorize which helps in in applying things but often lo- loses some of the nuance, right? And what I mean by this is traditionally in, in training, you, there's all these like zone models, right? Five zone, three zone, six zone, seven zone. And that helps with understanding the training and analyzing it, right? But, okay. Okay. Not all training is done in, in zones. What that what that pushes us or incentivizes us to do is to almost check the box and be like, today I'm doing a zone, I don't know, zone five or zone four, whatever you want to call it, training. And then we spend almost all of our time in that zone, right? It's why over time we have these traditional workouts that are all aimed at the same pace or intensity, right? I'm going to do eight by a K at at 8k effort, right? I'm going to do 6 by 800 at VO2 max, okay? we, We have what I'd call like straight repeats where everything is relatively the same. That is often a result of the way we classify things because it makes it easier to say today is a VO2 max day, today is a lactate threshold day. But what that does is it
1: constricts
0: and restricts you from realizing that like the stimulus you apply isn't one directional. It's not one simple thing, right? If how the, the, the answer I often give to this zone question is, how would you classify igloy training, right? Because it's all over the place. Well, you want a more modern example? If you showed up to, uh, you know, Scott Rasko's training, often his workouts would start, You know, we do 800 repeats and the first one might be like 220. The last one is like 159, you know? Or another example, you look at um, Ben Thomas, who was at Virginia Tech and then now is at Oregon. If you look at his, his workouts, the paces, the intensities vary all over the place, you know? You could go from... 10k pace down to 800 pace within the same workout and then bounce back and forth between all these things you could do you know one of the workouts i was looking at um that he does for his athletes is like again this goes back to bowerman almost it's like hills steady then 200s on the track you know how do you how do you classify that because you've got hills which is like some strength and some strength endurance then you've got this steady this is like high-end aerobic development then you've got quick 200s on the track well this is speed endurance and and my point there isn't to complicate the crap out of it but it's to it's you've got to step back you can't be constrained and sit there and be like okay today i'm doing x workout all the time you've got to know that there's variability in these things and 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 to give you this freedom almost this artistic freedom to explore with the athlete that you have because some athletes are going to need these
1: variable stimulus applied to get get what they need to do and that was the thing i think i was most disappointed as a college coach not to find was that explorer's mindset i thought being at the collegiate level in the collegiate environment you know is this openness and curiosity for knowledge. And unfortunately, the way their environment is nowadays is it's a get it right environment. We got to get it right. We got to get it right. So the fact like, you know, people are not as exploration thirsty as they used to be. And we highlight, you know, the um, coaches who were and then published works, right? Like a Bowerman or a V. Hill, you know, or even like, say, you know, Vin Lanana early in his career. You know, even, you know, Jerry Schumacher sat down early in his career and talked with Arthur Lydiard in person. I'd say probably the biggest influence on Jerry as a coach is that one on one dialogue with Arthur when they, he did his last speaking tour before he passed in the US. And you can see when you look at Jerry's sessions and trainings and progression, the import and impact and understanding he has of Lydiard's training. And the efficacy it can have for athletes. Um, But it was because the the mindset was, I'm open and I'm curious. But now with the get it right mindset, you, you know, where people's jobs, they feel like their job might be on the line, bonuses might be on the line, or status at the high school level might be on the line. There's a lot less wiggle room to go, huh, I wonder why that works. And that's always what when we come across outliers, whether in our own coaching environment, or they're published you know, um, for the greater good, we have to stop and go, huh, I wonder why that works. I wonder why Natalie Cook's training works. I wonder why um, Joe Newton's 150 mile a week for high school kids training worked. And it invariably you either way you post that you know it's like there's no way that'll work for someone else like at either end of the spectrum so it was like you can't have it both ways like the twitter trolls are very amazing in that regard and it's good to see that because they help educate and inform us about certain biases people have who say well you can't do 150 miles a week that's too much volume well you can't do 30 miles a week that's not enough volume it's like wait what what (laughs) but it worked and that's the key thing we gotta remember the stimulus that was applied to those people, and they're normal people. Like, you know, talent is a very uh, contentious thing, but talent is essentially things that are not malleable, right? So your height is a talent. That's that's not malleable. You can't just like, all right, we're going to increase limb length here or s- vertebrae length. It it is what it is, right? So other variables, a lot of times, what we're working on coaching is malleable. Uh, physio- the physiology is malleable. The neurology we know is plastic forever in life. Uh, nutrition and the rate of recovery, hydration, your mental state and what you think influences. Those are all very malleable. And we have to take away from the outliers uh, the, I think, um, success or clues that the success, their success leaves. Because Alan Webb's success left clues. Med ball training, weight training, uh in in the morning going and doing a master swim workout training, you know, when he kind of put all those ingredients together, it kind of really it worked, and it worked in a big way. But then it's the difficulty if, you know, like any person, he's trying to recapture this peak and ascent that he had delivered himself to um unknowingly through just being open-minded and exploring. I mean, his best year, 2007, was when he explored and said, okay, I'm going to do this swim training on top of all the other training. And he didn't tell (laughs) Rasko. That was the thing. He never told Rasko he's doing this on top of it. But it worked. And I'm always reminded of a quote, you know, from my good friend Jonathan Riley, uh, you know, who, you know, Olympic athlete, Ran for Vin at Stanford. One of the you know um, driving forces who made the Nike Super Shoes. He works at Nike now. Um, but he goes, you know, you don't know what's your best until it's in the rearview mirror. And I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right, smart guy. And but in order to find out what is your best, we must have that explorer's mindset.
0: Yeah. No, I think you're spot on, and I think what often happens is. We play it safe because well, it's more secure to do so. And in often environments, what we do is, especially in college environments, is we play it safe because if we can get 80% of the people to respond, we're gonna be all right. Cause you need five to show up or seven to line line up, you know? And the outliers who don't respond to our particular training, well, you know, you're still going to try, but they can do something else, you know, that that is often the attitude that's taken, not always, but often because the incentives are aligned with, okay. how do I get five people or seven people in in cross country or whatever people to qualify on the track to uh, to improve and get better? And how do I find the best, you know, five, seven, whatever it is. So then that's what the incentive is. It's not necessarily every, it's not, you're not judged on, do I get every single person better or how much better or the progress or the entire team? It's, It's a subsection of it. So I think that contributes to it because not, you know, calling people out, but that's like how you... Get job security and move up and whatever have you. It's the incentive structure of the college athlete, right? So I I I think that and that's not just college athletics. That's often how it is in in the world, right? Is narrow successes, a few narrow successes that are big, you know, help us more than a bunch of consistent or a bunch of you know small successes, for example. So it's just kind of how the world rewards things for us. But as you said, that restricts us. That keeps us out of that, that kind of explorer's mindset of like, okay, what else can we try here? And what I've often found has helped is imagining or constructing constraints. What would you do if you couldn't do X or Y? And I learned this very uh, very early, and everybody knows, like, or most people know, I ran a lot of mileage in high school. But what most people forget is that was almost entirely, well, five days a week, I was doubling every day. So if you look at my training log, it's a lot of five and five, six and six, you know, six and four, and it was almost always split evenly. Now, why in the world would that be? Simple constraints. We had morning cross-country. In, in Texas, you have athletic periods. So you had morning cross-country, like first-period athletics, which was cross-country. So you had 50 minutes. Okay? So what am I going to do? I'm going to get 50 minutes. I'm going to run for 30 to 40 minutes. And then run in, shower real quick, and get ready for second period. Then we had after school practice. Okay. So, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to get in another run. The other thing that was interesting that led to this constraint is we were restricted from going off campus. So, that means we had a loop around. Luckily, we had a junior high next door. So, we had this grass kind of loop that was, again, mostly grass that was, depending on the year, either a mile or a mile and a half. Well, you know, our coach wasn't going to be like, hey, I want you to run 10 miles around this mile loop every single day because we would have gone crazy. So we we split it up, right? Five in the morning, five in the evening, or whatever it whatever it has you. So that constraint... Like led to this different training than you know was normally it was like back then especially because Wetmore was big running with the buffaloes single single singles like get as much volume, but because of the environmental constraints we had to try something different, and it worked out really well. So I'm often in my own training and coaching. I often think, what is the constraint? If I if I can't do the traditional route, what am I going to do? And that is where that innovation leads to. I mean, I'll give you another example for when I was coaching at, at the University of Houston. We didn't have a lot of hills nearby, right? Our longest hill was like a 200-meter gradual hill. And well, we had to prepare, you know, not every year, but some years for some very hilly cross-country races. Okay, I have a constraint. I don't have long hills. I can't just run up and down this hill forever. Like it doesn't simulate it well. How are you going to simulate long hills? Okay, well, you know what we found worked pretty, pretty good is we do repeats where we do squats and squat jumps and lunges and just go through a circuit at the bottom of the hill, then run up the 200 meter hill. Because that simulates a lot of how you're going to feel after a a 600-meter hill or 800-meter hill. Your legs are going to be dead. So constraints are often our friend. How are you going to do this? And this is, again, why I think, I mean, I could give examples after examples. But this is why Igloy and all of his runners, like part of the reason why they had the system that they did, right? Right. They didn't have the availability that maybe a Lydia did of all these n- natural roads with hills where you could do long runs in his uh, original hometown or home country of Hungary, and then certainly in the middle of Los Angeles, where they were restricted mm-hmm. um, <laughs> essentially to to a, a track, and that's 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 about it. Track, yeah. So field. sometimes right well why did why did Sarity include you know sand dunes, why didn't he yeah. do a, a, a ton of like track work out on this stuff yes he had his philosophy but down at port c what did they have a bunch of sand dunes mm-hmm. and then some grass fields mm-hmm. like your constraints can often lead to breakthroughs to doing things in a different way and getting the same stimulus in a different manner because you can't you know, you can't do it the quote unquote traditional way.
1: And I mean, you know, that's important to share because like I had a similar constraint placed upon me in high school. Like I did the more standard, longer, get get your miles in like mileage club, yada, yada, yada thing when I, you know, really started to identify more as a runner and move away from being a multi-sport athlete as I was a junior. And it resulted in two stress fractures, Right no junior year of track. And like, I was fit going in. Like i ran like a, at the time, pre super shoes back in the old days, a solo 855, 3k solo. And then boom, gets, gets stress fracture one cross train like crazy. Come back, you know, looks like I might have a shot to get in and qualify the state. Nope. Stress fracture two. I'm on the shelf. No track season, no state sucked. So For me, the constraint was I can't do too much volume because it just showed, Okay, I'm going to get these stress fractures. Right. But I also knew I responded well to a little bit of weightlifting because my dad was into, you know, um, physical culture, so to speak. Right. So like lifting. And I had this gym membership that was for free at kind of the Hoi Toi gym across town. That I won because of being a scholar athlete at a young age, right? And they wanted to expose kids to this hoity toity gym. So, um, ended up being, you know, what happened was my senior year, I devised a method where S- Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, I would go to the gym in the morning and lift. And then on Monday, uh, Wednesday, Friday, in the morning, I would go to this park that had a mile loop around it. It's called Laurelhurst Park in Portland. It's based off a of central park. So it starts off real big hill for about 500 meters, plateaus for about 300 meters, long gradual downhill for about 600 meters, and then flat for the rest of the circuit. And I would just hammer the circuit three times, hammer three laps. It's, you know, like my warm up was essentially the four block jog from my house to the park and then right into it. And it was ideally it was trying to get progressive, right? Always trying to like first one under six minute pace for the mile and just do from there. And then four block jog back. So the constraint led to, all right, getting this nice kind of like, you know, you could say, um, lactate stimulus of three hard miles in the morning every other day. And then the stimulus of weightlifting every other day, because I only had so much time. I couldn't go lift. And um run because I only had so much time in the morning before class started. So I could only choose one. But I knew they were both important. And that really helped in the early part of the track season in you know February, March, and April, catapult my fitness to be able to be competitive, to have an injury free season and to make really fond memories with uh, my you know peers and uh, also competitively. And, you know, I remember Rob Connor, who had, had kind of overlooked me and as a recruit at the time, years later, he goes, shit, dude, if I would have known you would have done what you had done, you know, at state your senior year, I would have given you, you know, all this, you know, scholarship money to recruit you because I always give him a hard time because he passed on me. Uh, and i had wanted to go to UUP because it was right there, you know, the, the lure of the pilots was kind of like, I loved it, the underdog mentality still do to this day. Um, big fan of him and program, obviously. And you know, but I always give him a hard time because you know, he's like, Oh shit, you just you did it when I didn't have a scholarship money. And but that's what happens often, right? Is we prove ourselves or we figure it out through the constraint led approach, through quote unquote a non-traditional approach. But when we say, Okay, I gotta do the zone training, right? Well, heart rate also fluctuates based on the external conditions. So when it's really cold in Portland. At in, in the winter, man, my resting heart rate is low. It's like l- below 40s when it's cold. Now it's getting warmer. And like my resting heart rate is like in, you know, 40, 45. What happened? Oh my God, you're overtra- Like There's no, it's just warmer. <laughs> it's just at night, it's warmer. And my my wife likes it warm in our house or my wife likes it, the temperature warm in our house. So we leave the windows open. And the way our house is situated is our bedroom gets real hot because it gets the afternoon sun all day. So yeah, I'm going to have a lower resting heart rate in the spring and summer. I mean, higher resting heart rate in the spring and summer than I will in the fall and winter. And then I go out for my run and it's like, oh, you're five to 10 beats above what you usually are. Whoa, 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 you're out of zone. No, I, the perceived rate of exertion with Carl Foster works demonstrates that's the better metric. So that's why effort is the better metric always because that's the better constant. But if like my hydration levels are, are off or if I had like a, a lot of coffee before I ran, that spikes the heart rate as well, right? So all these other factors influence that. So just go with a zone training model based off heart rate while it sounds on the surface intelligent, and very um standardized there's a lot of variability there based off the external and internal conditions
0: yeah that's a great example and and it's one i'm familiar with obviously living in houston dude. when i visited
1: you a couple years ago before the pandemic like 2019 i was fit i was like i couldn't it was like the start of houston humidity season early june like i really thought i was going to pass out after like a five mile run 30 minutes (laughs) around your house i was like no no what happened i let no it's just i went to freaking houston texas man that's what happened that that that's right but that's
0: like that's that's the constraint you know that's the constraint i've lived with for a long time and coached with for a long time is you know i'm and again i love again i ran a ton of miles in in high school i love this stuff but What we had to figure out is okay. How do you develop that high-end aerobic ability without doing long, like the long tempos, the long progressions, etc., at a high quality? Because you can't, you die. Like you, like the example I I like to give is, you know, um, in high school, we do this ten-mile kind of hilly run that was through this park. Two five mile loops, and you know, on my best, I'd run like 53 minutes or something like that, 52 minutes, something, something in that range. Uh, when it was like the winter in the summer, like running 56, 57 minutes is torture. Like anything under 60 minutes, you're just like, Oh, it's I'm dying. So, you wouldn't do that as much, you wouldn't say, Hey, I need to go do a long progression run. You have to figure out different ways to develop that that aerobic system um, instead of the kind of long marathon pace progression stuff. Same when you're training someone for, for a marathon. But with high school kids or college kids in the summer, you're often told like, hey, do the, do the high end aerobic work, like develop that kind of, you know, marathon pace steady work, which is true. But if you try too much of that, you're going to die and fry them. <laughs> like you just can't do it.
1: Yeah. And so we- how do
0: you, de- you, you know, so you have to reverse things. Like we would do some of our longer progression runs later in the season. Once the weather finally co- cooperated when no one else is doing them. Why? Because you had to change the stimulus based on the constraints. You know, we're not, we're not doing that.
1: And we got to remember a steady state we're talking about steady state of the heart right if the goal is yeah. to influence the cardiovascular pulmonary system to get and have the heart beat at a continuous you know range uh, or you know with very low tolerance for a long duration you can think of other modalities besides running that could impact that right other things are possible oftentimes i think we correlate the steady state people misinterpret it the steady state is about steady pace and the pace is the steady state. No, no, no. It's the heart pumping. That is the thing we're influencing. And when we have a, a undereducated or poorly educated understanding of these things, we often then take things as concrete gospel and become a little bit reticent or absolutism in our reductionist thinking. But you can get a really good steady state stimulus depending on your circumstance and situation. Running at, you know, if you always watch like like say the a lot of people talk about the Kenyans the Ethiopians shuffle an easy jog, right? But they're running at four o'clock in the afternoon when the heat of the sun is starting to set, but it's still hot in Kenya. And they're also always running in full warm-up. Full warm ups, right? So we look at the pace, and they go, "God, they're going so slow." The external conditions of the heat, along with being in full warm-ups, which is also something the Japanese do, and Steve and I know from like, um, you know, blood plasma volume levels, viscosity levels, in getting people ready for championships and humidity. That's a protocol that we use with athletes in colder environments to like make sure that they can acclimate very well. So uh, when they go down to the Arkansas or Austin, Texas for regionals or Des Moines, Iowa for nationals. Um, but so they're running at this slow pace, but they've also put themselves in a situation where they gain a steady state effect even though it's slow. But then people go, aha, slow, you got to run slow to be fast. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Look at how they're running slow. Look at the other um, constraints. Self imposed sometimes and ex- environmentally imposed that influence that. So while, yes, they may be going at a ridiculously slow pace, their heart's getting the stimulus they want because of the warm up and because the warm ups, track shoots they're wearing, and the heat that they've exposed themselves to.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, you have to consider all, take these things into consideration. Often, often we don't. No. And that's where I think. You know, the theme of this podcast is like outliers and we're all outliers. Well, we we are. And we as coaches, <laughs> like,
1: we have to figure out how is this person an outlier when you're working with
0: them? Yes. And it's not just person, it's like our environment, our <laughs> our constraints, what we have around us. We're all freaking different. And yes, we might pull from Lydiard or serity or whoever, Igloy or whoever, but you have to also understand, or Zadabek, like they also Decided what they needed to do, partially because, yes, this is what they thought was best, but also because of their environment. Like, Zatapak isn't running 400-meter repeats unless he grows, probably, you know, unless he, you know, is in the environment that he is in, right? He's certainly not doing them with army boots every once in a while unless he was in the environment he was in, right? So... (laughs) The, the point isn't to be like, ah, you know, just forget about that. It's to realize that we're all adjusting and adapting to whatever environmental, personal, etc. constraints that we have. So when we're working with outliers, it's taking what we know, yes, of what usually works, but it's also taking how things work and saying, hmm, if this isn't working, is there another way to get this adaptation? Is there another way to attack this stimulus? Can we figure out a different method so that, you know, maybe we'll get the appropriate response or the response that we, we are seeking?
1: Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, yeah, with outliers, we have to understand and really, really probe why it worked, why it worked for them, that individual, but also too for the constraints of the environment and the situation. And when we take a superficial or shallow approach, or a closed-minded approach, right? And we say, "Oh, we can't look at the no, we we can't." No, no, no. You miss the golden opportunity to learn something new about some other way that might work. And remember, like training is an evolution, right? And the thing about evolution is it is it zigs and it zags, and it gets better and gets better. And I think. I have many more and hopefully a lot of listeners and I know Steve can attest to this and as well as, you know, scholar members, hopefully have many more, you know, pathways or routes which to solve the problem of how to get the athlete better, how to get the runner better than probably when you first started off, you know, coaching, probably when all your only exposure was what you had done as an athlete or this book, you one book you read. And when we started keep, when we stop exploring, when we stop seeking, when we stop asking, huh, why does that work? We then are poor ourselves for it as practitioners, but then also too, our athletes are underdeveloped and potentially kind of, you know, left behind, so to speak, who aren't immediate high responders or adapter to the program that you are putting forth. And again, a lot of people misunderstand you know and like to put people in boxes but you know i've been really proud of say like rob connor at up you know come back to him who's typically been you know labeled as a high mileage guy right his famous quote is 90 minutes is new 60 minutes but he has a cohort of young 800 meter runners he's now coaching and so what he's done is he's picked and probed like you know his college coaches um you know methods of training middle distance runners myself you know, other college coaches as well, peers of his. And he's kind of from, you know, throughout the course of the off season during cross country, he sent us texts, gave us calls, and he's trying to put together a way to really develop well his 800 meter guys. And, you know, he's doing, his 800 meter guys are doing three workouts a week now, you know, different types of like, Plyometrics and weightlifting, which is far beyond his comfort zone, and they're having success, and they're having fun, and they're running fast. Like it's awesome to see. So, I mean, you know, RC's been at UP for thirty plus years, right? I mean, and he has a method that had worked to position his program as a really continually successful cross country NCA program at the Division One level, who does not get top tier talent, but yet even he. Understood. Like, hey, there's other ways I can attack this to get these guys faster and hopefully have a better experience. And I use that as example for someone who you might think is an outlier in one direction of high miles, high volume type program, swinging the absolute inverse of the pendulum to the opposite side, and learning and doing something new and having success.
0: Yep, you. It's a great example that explore. It's the explorer's mindset. The putting the ego aside, the not being too attached to one quote unquote system and having more tools in your toolbox so that, you know, you can pull those out when you need to, because that's what it's all about. And and that is the absolute key. Like if we shut ourselves off to learning from all sides, from all experiences, then we just don't learn.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's great. I was talking actually yesterday at the meet with a high school teammate of mine who is coaching at one of the high schools in our uh, league and he's butted and become like a really pretty darn good ultra trail runner. Um, you know, he has a little bit of sponsorship. Like it's awesome. Like I've seen him thriving or just talking about aging and like, you know, getting close to 40 and stuff. And he's like, Oh yeah, I just started, I started weightlifting, you know, several years ago. Um, and it's just, it's the secret stuff, man. It, it just keeps me strong. It lets me bounce back. He goes, it's kind of something I don't want anyone else in our community to know about. Cause I feel like it's like my competitive advantage because everyone's so focused still in, you know, his cohort of the ultra trail world on run, 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 run. They're not taking the time to like do this different thing. It was, I never thought I would get into it. Cause like you, when we were in high school, he would, he was one of those skinny distance runners who just did not, who was like allergic to the weight room, just didn't want to go there. Didn't even want any exposure to it. He's just like, no, thank you. Right. I mean, And he's butted into become a really good ultra endurance athlete. But now like as he's aging, he's, he's tried it out. He saw the benefit of it. He's felt it and he's having more success because of it. That just warmed my heart to hear that he organically found his way towards something and novel for him that was going to help propel, propel him to become quote unquote, an outlier of sorts. Like he didn't really become a highly successful runner, until his twilight, quote unquote, years of, you know, middle age. So this is awesome to see. And I mean, the examples are proliferated everywhere. The most extreme ones are often, you know, highlighted in the press or what I call easy media. If you're listening to us, if you follow Steve or I, or you're a scholar, you know, we are not the uh, mainstream media by any means. We are what we call the niche media, (laughs) but we're really focused on putting out what we put out because, you know, it, it's important to see different ways people solve these problems differently and had success. Cause again, there's a million roads to roam.
0: Yeah. That's the answer. That's the takeaway. And that's what, that's why on the running scholar program, we in our courses go over everyone.
1: Yeah. No stone like, left unturned, baby from
0: those who love running 200 miles a week to those who only want to sprint Like If a coach has had success in whatever demands, we put it out there, we explore it, we try to take away things that are actionable that you might only use when you get that one athlete who is like, hey, this isn't working. I need something special. Well, that's why we go over the history of great coaches, pull out the obscure who had success that we've forgotten about. That's why we do it. And I, so you know, if you want
1: to, if you want to go, like right now, I'm looking to some obscure things about um, speed bag training with boxing, and there I forget the name, but there was an Irish sprint coach who had a lot of success with Irish sprinters in the late '70s, early '80s. You know, I think an Irishman won uh, either the world championship or Olympics in the short sprints, like just some white dude. And what the protocol was was speed bag training, um, where five days a week you know, I forget, I think it might have been six times three minutes of speed bag training and gaining this neuromuscular coordination with the arms and and upper limbs as kind of their pre-conditioning or general conditioning work and then translated to higher coordination capacity for these regular Irish people, short, stout, not long-limbed, to become world-class sprinters. And it's super interesting. I was talking with my kettlebell coach who is, was a boxer, originally uh, grew up as a boxer. And I told him the program, he goes, whoa, shit. Six times three minutes. Oh my God. Five days a week. Like he knows how tough that is uh, as a boxer. Couldn't believe it. And I mean, but that's what they, they, they did because this coach explored and I was like, there might be a, a, a neurological connection between – rapid coordination of the upper limbs and then it might influence the lower limbs to be more coordinated and powerful when we actually get to doing specific training of sprinting. And it worked and it's crazy. Um, But that's what I'm saying. It's like that broad explore open mindset, those are definitely outliers for sure, but there might be something there. And it's worth going down the rabbit hole. It's worth considering. And this is what I remind people is if you are physically capable, do the training on yourself first. See what it feels like. Get out there. Subject yourself to it. That's what I do. I am number. Give me pig number one. Everyone's like, "Oh, are you training for anything?" Yeah, I'm training. Yeah, to see what works and how it feels and what hurts and doesn't hurt, so that then I can have a better um, conversation with more import and also uh, understanding about what I'm go- about the athlete. Asks the athlete to do, and never an athlete has never, a coach has never done something I've already haven't done myself. If I'm asking you a kettlebell swing. I'm ask you to do a plyo circuit, a med ball circuit. If I'm asking you to do you know alternation surge training, 200 on, 200 float. I did it beforehand, and I said yes. This passed the threshold of my own test, and that's what serity did, right? That's what Lydiard famously did, and that's what a lot of the most innovative coaches have done. Is they try it on themselves first and they said yes yeah, there there might be something here or they try on themselves and they go we are not going to get involved in that no thank you
0: yeah no i i think that self experimentation is is huge so I think that's a brilliant example. I remember reading about those sprinters at one point. So I'm, I'm curious to what you, what, what, I'm what to, you yeah, find out. It, well,
1: the coach had a book and it's impossible to find the book. It's It might be like that Gordon <laughs> Perret book that we found, uh, you know, that was just like a random PDF on the internet <laughs> where it's like, this is a really good book for people, nerds like us. But, you know, the good books for nerds are unfortunately hard to find because they go out of print so quick.
0: Yes, that is the downside.
1: But that is why we will unearth and uncover
0: them if they are out there. So if that sounds interesting, hop on board board, join the program, and uh and thank you everybody for listening. We appreciate our listeners and for helping spread the word. If you find these, you know, interesting, you know, join the community, but also, you know, share it with other coaches who might who might find some value because that's what we're all about is raising the game of the coaching world you know one coach at a time
1: it is literally one coach at a time it's awesome to see new scholars join the clubhouse uh join the program you know every couple every like seven to ten days i give a shout out but it it really is it's a trickle it's not a flood but one at a time it all of a sudden then will become a mountain